I don't know if it's true for your family, uh, certainly not true of my family, and it's probably not true of your family, but I have heard that there are some families, there are some people in the world who buy things, uh, don't use them right away, and then forget about them until they're no longer usable, they're no longer, it's no longer possible, their, their, their date, their expiry date, or their best before date has uh, gone way, way past, and whatever they bought has to be thrown out. I mean, that's certainly not true of my family. We'd, we'd never do that. I'm sure that's not true of your family. It's other families who have done this. Um, but I've heard and I've read stories of how there are some who buy milk or cream, put it in the fridge, and then don't use it for what they thought they would use it for. They leave it there for a long period of time, or maybe it's some cheese or some fruit, and you, you pull it out, and you go, oh no, the date is past. It's, it's best before date. It's gone. It's, it's over. And I've heard that these families actually look at that, that due date, that best before date, and say, I'm not sure. I wonder if I can still use this. And so they open the top, they open it up or they check the, you know, whatever the package is or they squeeze the fruit and they smell it and they go, <sniffs> and they give it a good sniff. They give it a good smell. I'm, it's probably not your family. My family would never do that. I mean, we would, we would never take those kinds of things in it and do that, right? You'd never use the sniff test. You look at the best before date and that's it. You look, and if it's past the due date, then immediately throw it in the trash, right? Pour it down the drain. It's gone. You never use it again. I've heard some people give it the old sniff test. I've heard some people, when it comes to potatoes in their pantry, certainly not my family. It's other families, and probably not your family either. I'm confident of that. They may pick up those potatoes, and they start to mash them or they start to peel them or they start to get them ready for whatever it is part of the meal that they're going to have and then you notice that uh, in the bottom of the pantry that there's a little bit of a stain where the where the potato bag used to be it's brown looks odd you don't put anything wet down on the floor right there so what is it that that would be and so you go back to the potato bag and you stick your nose in and you give it a good smell because you really want to see if there's something that is off if the potatoes are past their best before date. I've read that. I mean, my family would never do that and your family would never do that, but I've heard that some families don't believe that even when there's a stain underneath the potato bag, like there's something wet that's been there, you'd, you're just like, that ah, can't be my potatoes, and they stick their nose in and they smell it. And you know what else I've heard? It's not just with food. Some people do it with clothing. Did you know that? Some people do that with clothing. They, they wear a shirt, they wear some pants or some socks or something else, and, and they think, I wonder if I can wear this again. Maybe it has a stain, 
maybe it has a spot, maybe it, you know what you did in that shirt, in those jeans, maybe you were out in the yard working and you, you pull it up off, carefully off the floor, where you laid it to rest the night before and you look at it and think, maybe I could wear this again, maybe I don't need to launder this right now, and what do you do? You give it the sniff test. And you check the armpits or wherever else would be the worst spot that something could smell really bad just to make sure that that's okay to wear the next time you want to wear it. You just, my family doesn't do this at all. I just want you to know that. And I'm sure that your family doesn't do that because what family would do that? What family in their right mind would do that? What family would give everything the sniff test just to see if something is good? It's time to change the cloth, the dishcloth at the kitchen sink. Even though it's stained, even though it's got residue on it from the dishes that were done and the counters that were wiped down. No, no, you pick it up and you smell it. Just to see if it's really time to launder that dishcloth. Why do we do that? Because we think the sniff test works, right? Let's be honest. My family does it. We don't do all of those things. I just picked a lot of really extreme examples. Maybe your family does too. But we, we assume that we can, we can smell when things are good or when things are bad. That they're going to have, if they're going to be an odor, then, then our nose is going to be able to pick them up. We're so confident that the sniff test is going to work. As a matter of fact, I, I love... I love the sniff test because uh, I am sensitive to bacteria in that regard. If I smell it on clothing, if I smell it on like a towel that's damp, um, I don't just want to wash it. I want to blend it, liquefy it on the highest uh, dish uh, laundry setting that I possibly can. You know, the three-hour one where it's just the hottest water possible over and over and over again because you just want, you want that smell gone. Um, we like the sniff test. People like the sniff test. I wish there were a sniff test for people. Wouldn't that be nice if there was a sniff test for people? To know if someone is good or someone is not so good? Wouldn't it be nice? Remember dating? Remember dating? Remember relationships back in high school? You didn't know whether someone was a good fit or wasn't a good fit? Wouldn't it be great if you could just walk up and go, yep, good fit. Or nope, not a good fit. Wouldn't that have made life easier in high school? Wouldn't that have made things easier in college? That would have been absolutely amazing to have that. How about your coworkers? Whether you should get to know them or whether you should keep your distance from them. Just first day on the job, just walk up and, yeah, I can, I can hang out with you. Or, nope, nope, I can't hang out with you. That's not going to work out. You're not a good person if someone's really good or someone's really great. I wish we could use a sniff test. How about a sniff test for salespeople? Like if they were telling you the truth or not. Like you're buying a major appliance or an automobile or even something online. Imagine you take out your, your uh, Amazon 
uh, app and you open it on your phone and you click, okay, can I trust these reviews about this product? And there's a button where you can just press it and it allows you to smell the product. You can do a sniff test right off the app. Imagine that you could just smell that right off your phone and go, yep, I believe these reviews. Or nope, I don't. The problem is, of course, right? Even though we believe the sniff test works, we cannot trust it. We cannot trust that the sniff test is accurate. And I think that's especially true when it comes to whether people are good, great people for us to lean into, for us to learn from. When it comes to things like um, whether someone's good or whether someone's great, what do we usually use as a way to measure their greatness? Because I think there's two things. What do you think? What do you think? If you're watching, uh, participating online, type your answer in in chat. What do you think are the metrics that people use in order to tell whether someone else is, is a really great person? What are the things that we look for? Accomplishments. Yeah. I think their accomplishments are one of the things that we look at. As a matter of fact, that's probably the predominant thing that we look at when it comes to greatness, right? We, we'd love to have the sniff test, but because we don't, we tend to use accomplishments as the sniff test. You have uh, every sport in the world has a record holder in that sport. It can be the strangest sport that doesn't interest you at all. And there will be someone who holds a record in that sport. For example, if you look at the Guinness Book of, record, Book of Records, you will find a record for someone who held their breath the longest underwater. That doesn't seem to be really competitive to me. As a matter of fact, it kind of seems dangerous to me. Just, you know, thinking out loud, it doesn't seem like it's something that I would be fully interested in. But there's a record for that. There's a record for the longest note held by a musical instrument, by a, by a musician playing a note. How long could it be? I think it's Kenny G. Um, please don't research that. Because it's Kenny G. All sports have record holders. They have halls of fame for their sport. Who are the best at the positions and who accomplished the most? Who performed the best during the playoffs? What's the title that they give them? What's the award that they give them? The most valuable player, the MVP, right? Music artists are ranked by a top 10 chart weekly. They're ranked in their genre of music. They're ranked as to where people are listening to their music. United States, Europe, all over the world. So music artists are ranked. And students get awards for having top marks in their class. Right? You know, I'm not one to brag, um, but I got an award in high school top mark in my class. Would you like to know what that class was? Typing. Typing. I was the fastest, most accurate typer in my grade. (laughs) 
feels fitting to share that on Pastor Appreciation Sunday. Just adds one more notch to the belt. They give awards for everything, right? I mean, at some point, they give you an award just for participating. Thanks, you tried your best kind of an award. But we rank people, we assume people are great from their accomplishments, right? What's the other thing that we do? If we don't just rank people's goodness and greatness from their accomplishments, what do you think the other thing is? Failures? Mm, Not quite. It's kind of the same thing as accomplishments, but you're not wrong. It's uh, certainly we like to look at the top 10 failures or the, you know, there's the the Darwin list every year that comes out, uh, those kinds of things. Those are always interesting to read. Um, People who fail in spectacular ways. Um, uh, But there's something else. Influence? Close. We're on the right track. It's not, um, it's not viral word of mouth. It's something else. Not character. It's position. It's title. The other thing that we look at is we look for people who have a title. Who are you to be telling me this? Well, I'm an admiral. I'm an admiral in the, in the army. Admiral in the navy. Oh, I should probably listen to you because you have a title. When you go and you uh, want to do some business at the bank, you want to talk to someone who has the right authority to do what you're asking them to do. So titles like CEO, diplomas, degrees, all great things, all great accomplishments. But I don't think those two things are a great test of greatness as a matter of fact I think they're like the sniff test where we think oh I know a person we use their skill and accomplishments we use their position and their titles to decide whether someone's great and Jesus says there's something better that we can use that's better than ability and it's better than position And someone's already mentioned it. And it's a story that if you grew up in church, you know well. And if you have a Bible with you, turn with me in them to Mark chapter 10, starting at verse 32. Jesus gives a little bit of a story, and just as we're looking at these verses, it's interesting uh, that the preceding story that we wrapped up probably three months ago or so, and just came back to today, uh, Jesus talks about the level of sacrifice that is necessary to be his disciple, that you must surrender everything to follow him and the reward will be worth it. That's a tough message to hear, and so Jesus wants to tell them, look, just because things aren't hard now doesn't mean that things won't be better later, so hang in there, let me give you the plan. And we read in Mark chapter 10, verse 32, that Jesus and his disciples, they were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. 
What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. And Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. So let's just kind of unpack what's happened here. Jesus is headed towards Jerusalem with his disciples, those who want to follow. And he's told them some hard truths, some hard things to hear. That if you want to be his disciple, it will cost you. Jesus is Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. And can we trust him in every arena of life? Can we trust him when the sacrifice that he asks from us is life? That's what they were wrestling with. And so Jesus says, no, 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 that's the plan. Yes, I'm going to be arrested. Yes, it's going to be by the religious rulers of the people of God. But don't worry. Even though they put me to death three days later, I will rise again. And in the middle of that, James and John ask what you and I would ask. So, how's that going to work? What's going to happen after the rising? What's, where are we going to be? What is our position going to be? What is our status going to be? And could it be this? Could we have this opportunity? Could we get involved in this thing? And I, I love that honest question. This is not a terrible question. This is actually a good question, and we know that for a couple of reasons. The one is that Jesus doesn't say, what a stupid thing to ask. Jesus doesn't reprimand them. He just says, uh, uh, do you know what you're asking? Do you know what you're asking for? Do you know what I'm about to go through? Do you know the cost that is associated with that kind of reward? Do you know the risk that you're about to run? And that's what he's indicating when he says the cup that I need to drink and the baptism that I need to go through. Can you go through what I'm about to go through? They said, yes. In other words, they're willing to follow Jesus to their deaths if necessary. Sure, they wouldn't prefer it, but they're ready. And so they're wondering, can we ask for the reward? Second reason I know that Jesus, this is a good thing, that they're asking this, this is a normal thing for people to ask, is that uh, because this is something that I think every leader has to want. It's not that every leader thinks, oh, there would be someone else better in charge. People who are in leadership want to be in leadership because they feel a calling, they feel compelled, they feel that they can make a difference, they feel like they want to make a difference, they can do better than the person who's in charge now, so put me in charge, and so they're wondering, if I do, if I go through this sacrifice, what is the reward? As a matter of fact, I know this is true for churches. Uh, Very recently, our nominating committee met to discuss elected positions for the highest 
spots of leadership in our church. Um, the way that we're structured as a church is that we are an elder-led church, meaning that we have a board of men who come together along with deacons and deaconesses to govern the affairs of the church and to evaluate the effectiveness of our ministries in connecting people to Jesus Christ and helping them grow in a caring community. And a group of people come together and they think about and pray over who are the best qualified leaders to be on those positions. And at the meeting that we had this last week, we first reviewed the qualifications for leadership. And Paul says to Timothy in his instructions about setting up the church for success with elder leadership, he says, now, for those who desire the position, the task of overseer, they desire a noble thing. It is a good thing for people to want to aspire to high positions of Christian leadership. And so Jesus doesn't correct them. There's nothing wrong with asking to be great in God's kingdom. There's nothing wrong with asking for the authority that you need in order to be great in God's kingdom. Of course it will take sacrifice, just like Jesus had to sacrifice. But this is like going to someone and saying, what do I need to do to be the best? That's like going to your boss and saying, I'm not content enough with just being another cog in the machine. Tell me what I need to do in order to be the best. What's the path? What's the direction? And I love that. What do you want to be an expert in for the rest of your life? What do you need to do to get there? Do it. The problem is that we have a little bit of a distaste because of a sense of humility that we want to see from our leaders. Oh, shucks, and, and so on. Um, I want you to know, just as an aside, this is a really awkward message to talk about on Pastor Appreciation Sunday, and that's always the way this seems to work. The Sunday that we have a Pastor Appreciation Sunday is the, pas is the passage, uh, the sermon I'm going to be talking about where it's like, yeah, this is me. Whew. We have a little bit of a sense of, I don't like the way they asked. I don't, why should they get that? Right? And that's what happened, actually, with James and John. Jesus, Jesus simply says, look, it's a great question. It's not a bad question to have. Unfortunately, it's not my responsibility to answer it. Someone else is responsible for those places, and they've been prepared for someone. I just don't know who. I haven't been told. It's above my pay grade. So you'd have to ask someone else. He just doesn't answer it. And he thinks that it's over. But then this happens. When the ten, the other disciples, heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Maybe it's because it's a rude question to ask. What's the compensation package? even though we do that all the time. Or maybe they just thought, maybe we should have asked for those seats first because they could have been ours. Maybe it's first come, first serve, right? So Jesus called them together and said, uh, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, 
And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus corrects their definition, their description of greatness by saying it's not about what authority does for you, but what it does for others through you. Authority is not about what it does for you. It's about what it does for others through you. It's less about being powerful and more about being empowering. It's less about being powerful and more about being empowering. And here's the problem with this. We know this, don't we? We understand this. We love it when those who have authority serve us. We know how good that is. We know how good that is for society. The problem is, especially if you grew up in church, you've heard this story before, and you go, yeah, I already knew the answer about, you know, if you start talking about greatness, I know it's going to be talking about serving. The problem is, My problem is, I, I don't know if I can do that. I don't know if any of us can do that. It's easier to know this, to put it on a nice picture, hang it on your wall, maybe put it as a bookmark in your Bible, or have an image of it for a photo um, uh, that you post on your social media. Son of man yeah, did not come to be served, but to serve, something like that. It's easy to know, and it's very hard to do. As a matter of fact, my mentor, uh, Kent Edwards, um, often said, and even most recently said on the Crosstalk podcast, that it is hard to say that I've ever done anything with a truly pure motive. It is, hard to, it is hard to say that I've ever done anything with a pure motive. Our nature, my nature, our nature is that we want to know what's in it for us. We do. What's the payoff? What's the reward? What's the benefit? But to truly be a great person, you don't think about the reward for you. You think about the reward for others. That's what being a slave is. Slave, as loaded as that term is in our culture, because of what we've read or maybe because of what we've experienced, that term, that image, that metaphor is of a person who solely exists for the benefit of their owner. And what Jesus is telling us to do as Christians is that if we want to be truly great in his economy, in his kingdom, is to consider ourselves owned by another. Serve them like that. And who are those others? Everyone. Everyone. 
And it's hard not to wonder how do we do anything with a truly pure motive like that. If I'm being asked for a job or a ministry assignment, I want to know what's the time commitment, what's the objectives, have I got the skill set, and have I got the expertise to accomplish it? And if not, the odds are I'm going to decline the job, decline the ministry opportunity. And the same is true for all of us, I think. But this is what Jesus is asking us to do. And the question that I have is how? How can you and I begin to move from, well, what's in it for me to something greater? I think Jesus shows us in the very next scene. They came to Jericho. Was Jericho the final destination? Where were they headed? No, Jerusalem. So, this is a a way stop. It's It's a place where they're maybe getting some gas, some food, you know, that kind of thing. They're just stopping for supplies, and then on they go. They got to pass through this town. So they came to Jericho, and as Jesus and his Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus was sitting by the roadside begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And so they called to the blind man, cheer up on your feet. He's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. And the blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus on the road. This man exhibited enormous faith to declare as loud as he could, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And people were telling him to be quiet. Why? Don't you find that odd? I mean, people loved Jesus for what? His ability to have mercy on people and to do supernatural things in their lives. Why? Why are they telling him to be quiet? It's because of where he was headed. Jerusalem was just a spot on the map. It wasn't his final destination. It wasn't on his agenda. It wasn't on his to-do list. This isn't where... He wanted to be. He had a job to do. He had an assignment from his heavenly father. And he needed to get there. That's where they were headed. And here's this interruption. Jesus, 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 Jesus. Like this is the proverbial. Mom, 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 mom. What? 
Nothing. I love you, but please don't make it hard for me to love you. Right? This is a distraction. But look at what Jesus did, even with his divine destiny. Lying in front of him. He says, oh, bring this distraction over. Well, I added that part. Call him over. And so he comes over and Jesus says, I think, just an amazing phrase that unlocks what it means to be truly great. To the man who just interrupted him from his schedule, from his busy day, from everything that he had to do for the kingdom of God. He says, what is it you would like me to do for you? He says, how can I help? He stops what he's doing and allows himself to be interrupted and simply says, what can I do for you? I don't know if you noticed, but that's actually what he said to James and John when they said, Lord, we have something that we'd like you to do for us. And he said, what is it that you would like me to do? That's the kind of God that we have. That's the kind of savior that we have. And that's the kind of example that we have. Great people are servants of all. And I know it's really hard to serve when our motives are not always pure. But the way that we stop thinking about what's in it for us and what's in it for others is a simple question. What is it you want me to do? And then if it's at all possible, help them. That's what great people are. Great people are the ones who ask, what do you want me to do for you even when that person can do nothing for you in return. Nothing to aid your agenda. Nothing to aid where you're headed. Nothing to advance you in any way. And I think Jesus is challenging his disciples to be like that person. Who asks, what is it you want me to do for you? And then if it's within their power, do it. You know what's interesting about that question, what, what is it you want me to do for you? Is there an age limit to when you can actually do that? Do you have to be a certain age in order to ask, what is it you'd like me to do for you? No. Children can do it. And as a matter of fact, you often see children doing it on the playground. You often see them helping each other do things that maybe someone else couldn't do. And it's not going to advance their career. It's not going to advance their game time on the playground. It's just going to help someone else get involved in playing. Is there a, a maximum uh, age you can be? Is there at some point when you reach, you know, 65, is, does that shut off? Can seniors ask the question, what is it you would like me to do for you? Absolutely they can. Challenges, though, I think for seniors with, with health challenges, with those responsibilities, with, with families spread out all over the world, even in retirement, that can become a difficult thing. And I think at some point, 
somehow we learn instinctively how to ask the question, what's in it for me? And it is so easy to get wrapped up in what's in it for me that we lose sight of what's in it for you. Do you remember at the beginning of the pandemic, got to think way, way back now that we're kind of in the tail end of, of things, but think way, way back. What was kind of the thing that marked the beginning of the pandemic? We were still trying to figure out what is this happening? What are we learning about? How is this going to come into the country? That sort of thing. Do you, but do you remember how it really hit home? People cleaned out store shelves of toilet paper. Do you remember that? Like you go to the, you go to the store, you go to Wegmans, you go to Costco, you go to Walmart, you go to BJ's, and you go to, well, I just need a pack for my family. And, and people were fighting over a square of tissue of, of toilet paper. Just one square. And people were like, no, it's mine. I need that. And, and people were stocking up. They're loading up wagons, wagons for toilet paper. Now, was there a toilet paper shortage? No. But when people heard that there was going to be a health crisis and that it was unavoidable, the question of what's in it for me, how do I make sure I'm okay, elevated to the forefront of the national consciousness. And Jesus says, just flip that. I know that's the natural tendency, but flip that. By allowing people to interrupt your day, when they ask. And encourage that by asking one simple question. What is it you want me to do for you? Who is around you that can do nothing for you? And how can you help them? Do it. I guarantee you it'll take some time out of your plans and your agenda and the things you want to get done and the busyness. And it's not that those things aren't important. However, if you would like to be great, if you would like to demonstrate, like we talked about last week, what faith-filled risk looks like, I think this is a great place for that to start. Be someone who asks What do you want me to do for you? Even when they can't do anything for you in return. Amen. I'm going to ask Will Padilla to join me at the front. And as we prepare for communion, there's an interesting... um, secondary truth in this passage and that is this we have a God who lets his children come into his presence who lets sinners come into his presence and with just a little bit of faith loves to say What is it I can do for you? That's the Jesus that we have. Even though we have nothing to offer him in return. That's the Jesus that that we have. And in this table, 
we see the greatest example of what he wants to do for us. We see the greatest example of his love for us that he laid down his life. His body was broken, his blood was shed, which we symbolize in the cracker and in the juice. Jesus doesn't just tell us how to be great. He shows us how to be great. He doesn't just tell us to be a servant of all. He shows us how to be a servant of all. And there is no greater example of how he was willing to lay down his life than when he actually laid down his life. This table is not... um, something that's reserved for Trinity Alliance Church. It's not something that's reserved for uh, those who are members and regulars here. That's not uh, what this table is. It's for anyone who has declared their faith in Jesus Christ and trusted Him for their salvation. And if that's a step that you would like to take, then you can easily pray a prayer while we're passing out the elements that states that I believe I'm a sinner And I believe that Jesus died for my sins and rose from the dead, that he paid the penalty. And I choose to trust him and follow him. You can pray that prayer. You can participate in this table. But as the elements are distributed and as we sing about what Jesus has accomplished for us, let's celebrate That sacrifice, it was for you, for your ultimate good. And for our example of who Jesus can help you to be.